Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Medicine Forward, a grassroots impact network elevating the voice of physician change leaders. Medicine Forward is dedicated to creating a brighter future for healthcare by fostering collaboration, innovation, and positive change within the medical community. With a strong commitment to improving the human patient physician relationship, Medicine Forward brings together forward thinking physicians, healthcare leaders, and change makers to tackle the most pressing challenges in healthcare today. Their initiatives span advocacy, education, and community engagement, all driven by the shared goal of creating a healthier and more equitable healthcare system. As a trusted sponsor of our podcast, Medicine Forward exemplifies their mission to promote meaningful dialogue, facilitate interdisciplinary collaboration, and inspire innovative solutions for a healthier world. We're honored to have Medicine Forward as a partner in our journey to explore the latest developments and insights in healthcare. To learn more about Medicine Forward and their work, visit their website at medicineforward.org. Join us in supporting this remarkable organization as they continue to drive positive change and transformation in healthcare. Hello, welcome to the Ripple of Change Searching for Our Quadrupling podcast. Your hosts are me, Joshua Judy, and Tada and Medical Doctor, co-authors of the book Ripple of Change. If you enjoy what you hear today, please remember to hit like and subscribe and, and support us as we make our way through the healthcare landscape for the betterment of everyone. And with that, I'd like to introduce our very special guest today, Rick Mountcastle. And let me tell you a little bit about him. I think you're going to really enjoy it, uh, hearing his story. It's a great opportunity to showcase Ripple of Change from the non-healthcare professional. Rick is an attorney who retired in June of 2022 after 42 years of public service. During more than 32 years with the Department of Justice, Rick held numerous leadership positions in the office of the United States Attorney for the Western District of Virginia. Rick led the first investigation and prosecution of and maker Purdue Pharma and its three top executives as portrayed in the Emmy-nominated Hulu miniseries, Dope Sick. And just a quick aside, if you haven't caught that, please uh, make time to do so. It's wonderful. He conducted numerous criminal and civil prosecutions of healthcare providers for fraud, False Claims Act, and other violations resulting in dozens of criminal convictions and the collection of more than $2 billion in monetary penalties. Rick served four years on active duty as an Army JAG and 24 years in the National Guard and Reserves. Since September of 2022, Rick has been a producer of the documentary film No Country for Old People, a nursing home expose by award-winning filmmaker Susie Singer Carter. No Country for Old People, which features more than 70 interviews with leading industry experts, exposes a dysfunctional nursing home system, funded mostly with taxpayer money that puts profit over people, resulting in the systemic neglect and abuse of one of our most vulnerable populations. Funded by tax-deductible contributions through fiscal sponsor, the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, the film is in an editing process and anticipated for release in early 2024. For more information, including links to Sizzle Reels, please check out their website at gogirlmedia.com backslash no country for old people. 
on there. There's also an opportunity to donate to their cause as well. Rick, thank you very much for your service to our country and welcome to our show, Ripple of Change. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you. It's uh, great to, to be chatting with both uh, you, know, you, Dr. Todd, and Joshua, and uh, uh, to talk about your book and to talk about the healthcare system in general, and, uh, and from my perspective, maybe the uh, nursing home industry in particular. So it's, it's great to be talking with you guys. Yeah, thanks so much, Rick. So I'd like to kick things off. Um, so if, if you don't mind, uh, your career is filled with examples of challenging the status quo, Rick. Service to others and creating positive ripples of change. What and or inspires you? You know, I'll probably have to go back to uh, my um, high school, college days, um, back into the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, during that time where I was, you know, kind of beginning to grow up, uh, that was the midst of the civil rights movement and all of the institutional justice injustice that was rampant um, in our country back then, and to some extent is still in existence today, uh, especially in our court systems. And, um, uh, you know, my dad worked for the government. He was in the Air Force and he worked as a uh, Department of Army um, in the civil service uh, for his entire life. And at the time I was uh, a junior in high school, uh, I'm sorry, college, uh, back in 1976, thinking about what I was going to do. I knew I had to serve four years in the Army because I had a, a, an ROTC scholarship that I was going to school on. But it hit me that you know, I could I could work for the government. I could be in public service. That would be something that I would be comfortable doing. And I also was uh, interested. Uh, you know, there's something that rubbed me the wrong way about the injustices in our society, uh, particularly uh, with with the civil rights issues and the issues with the courts. And I decided that I wanted to go to law school and that I wanted to do whatever I could to make the system more just. Uh, so I was really in, interested in, in achieving justice. Uh, so that's kind of the start of what pushed me into law school and what kind of has been has motivated me probably for the last 40 plus years is I just have I, I just dislike injustice. I would say I hate injustice, and I just feel that wherever I can contribute to make our society more just, that's just my my calling, and that's what helps people. Yeah, that's wonderful, Rick, and and thank you for sharing that. It's very inspiring. Um, just a, a follow up to that: what was the most defining moment in your career uh, as a federal prosecutor? Would you say? Yeah, so I look back and I, I kind of took that question even further back because uh, at this point, you know, where I'm, I'm retired after 40 years of service, I look back and what I see are a series of building blocks uh, throughout my career. You know, my the, the most striking memory of my service in the Army as an Army JAG, uh, about halfway through my four years on active duty, I was advising a commander of the of a regional recruiting command um, out near Chicago. Uh, I was his only lawyer. And back in those days, those those guys, those um, um, military guys that were in the combat arms, infantry, armor, artillery, they really disliked lawyers. Uh, 
So I was like a thorn in this guy's side. And there came a time where it, I, I received information that he was not complying with the regulation in terms of making a report uh, to the headquarters, to his senior officers. And I had the task of going into his office and telling him, sir, uh, you are not following the regulation and here's what we need to do so you can comply with the regulation. And I knew he would not like that. And so, so I, me being two years out of law school, uh, a junior captain going in to see this full colonel, uh, armor officer, hard charging about the mission, uh, with tasked with telling him that he had to change what he was doing was not a very, uh, not something I look forward to doing. But I also thought that was, and that was my duty, and I had to do it. So I got to see him turn red in the face. I got to see him kick me out of my, kick me out of his office. And then he act, he did what he was supposed to do. So to me, that was an early lesson in doing the right thing, even if it's not something that's going to have a, you know, you're going to feel good about or it's going to be pleasant to do. Uh, so that was a, something that I, that stuck with me throughout the, the, the notion that I have to do the right thing no matter what, no matter how painful it might be. To myself, I think in my prosecution career, um, I would point to just really quickly some some cases that kind of formed, um, you know, my my career. Um, uh, 1991 prosecution of the head of the Russian uh, organized crime um, out on Long Island, New York, a two week trial uh, for excise tax fraud. Um, you know, spending nine years at the Department of Justice's tax uh, in the criminal tax section, traveling around the country prosecuting tax cases, which was not necessarily the most popular thing to do back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, maybe even now it's, it's it's kind of a tough, tough thing to do, but all, and always being the away team, always being the uh, here's the here's this attorney from Washington, uh, you know, being kind of, look, you know, frowned upon. Uh, going to these all these locations and prosecuting tax fraud, which, uh, you know, not necessarily the most popular thing to do. But it was again, I felt it was something that needed to be done. Uh, it, it, there needed to be a balance in our justice system. We can't always go after the poor people that are doing street crimes and robbing, you know, 7-Elevens and that stuff. And we have people that are committing fraud, uh, whether it's tax or health care or other types of fraud. Those are people that are tend to be wealthier, uh, more well dressed, look like uh, you know professionals. But a you know a fair justice system requires that those folks be prosecuted just like everybody else. Um, of course, the Purdue Pharma case that was a big case, um, uh, and that's talked about quite a bit. Uh, all over the place, including the Hulu miniseries. So I won't get too much into that. I think the prosecuting after that, the Abbott Labs, Abbott Laboratories, the farm, large pharmaceutical company for uh, off-label marketing an epilepsy drug to treat agitated elderly dementia patients in nursing homes. That sort of struck me as another example of how large corporations abuse people that don't have a voice in order to make money. Uh, that's, and of course that strikes to the heart of my, my core value of, you know, 
we need to have justice and that's not that's a complete injustice uh, and then probably la uh, another case would be prosecuting uh the owners of a nursing home uh for basically running the nursing home into the ground and and abusing residents the, the Bryan center rural nursing home in weber city virginia but it was owned as part of a uh, an investment by um, an owner in Miami and some corporate executives in Ohio and and trying to be creative in how to prosecute those folks in Virginia. Uh, that I thought that was an, uh, a, a case that um, that left it was very important. Um, and then lastly, the opportunity towards the end of my career uh, to serve 15 months as the U.S. attorney uh, in the Western District of Virginia uh to correct some injustices there structurally uh within the uh, office and within the law enforcement community to to make sure that um, justice was done uh, and that our law enforcement acted within the rules and so doing things in that area which wasn't necessarily popular uh with both people inside and outside of the office again built on everything that I had done in my career, um, making tough decisions and sticking with them that, uh, because again, in the interest of justice. So that's kind of a, a long-winded answer to your, your question, but uh, it's hard to put my finger on one particular case. Totally understand, and, and thanks for sharing that, Rick. I mean, uh, incredible profile and doing what's right, not what's necessarily popular in in the moment but um pushing through and, and doing what's right and courageous so rick if i can i'd like to double click on some of that a little bit that was fantastic uh and just for the audience i am very fond of the year 1976 and you could probably figure out why <laughs> um probably dating myself with that one a little bit <laughs> but anyways uh I, I got a fortune cookie when i was in college that said uh, your principles mean more to you than any money or success and I still have that to this day uh, in an old wallet. And it was a big inspiration for writing Ripple of Change with Joshua. And, you know, we're very much aligned with a lot of this. And because our goal with the book ultimately is to inspire and empower, hopefully, if not thousands, tens of thousands, and maybe more to speak up and play their part to improve things, particularly in the healthcare realm. Um, but obviously, it goes well beyond that. Uh, so thank you for all your efforts in the past. And actually, simply enough, a thank you is how we connected. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But on to the next question here. Um, we would love to hear about your current project that you're working on. Can you tell us about No Country for Old People, a nursing home expose? Yeah, so I retired in uh, June of 2022 from, I was at the uh, Attorney General's office in Virginia. And at that point, having worked there through COVID and coming out of COVID, it was like kind of time I was aging out, getting a step slower than, and it was time for other people to do that kind of work. But in the meantime, um, Dope Sick had come out in, 20, in the fall of 2021. And I had started getting calls from people wanting to me to be on podcasts, uh, wanted me to do other things. Uh, and I got a call from um, this filmmaker, Susie Singer Carter, 
in late 2021, early 2022, uh, because she is a, not only is she a filmmaker, but she's also an advocate for Alzheimer caregivers. She cared for her mother. She was the primary caregiver for her mother who had lived with Alzheimer's for 16 years. And she also ran, did a podcast to provide information to other folks who were caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's. And so I, she reached out to me because uh, of the mention in Dope Sick of the Abbott Labs case and it was the case we did after the Purdue Pharma case uh, because her mother had been treated with um, um, the, the, the drug Depakote uh, with some devastating results. And um, so she reached out, I appeared on her podcast, and then she began having issues with her mom um, and the care that she was being provided with the five-star nursing home that she was at in Los Angeles. And she started contacting me so I could kind of give her some advice, walk her through what was happening and why decisions were being made the way that they were being and ultimately kind of open her eyes to the fact that the nursing home industry is highly dysfunctional, dysfunctional, highly profit-driven to the detriment of patient care. Uh, And after about six months of discussions, one of our conversations had to do with whether or not she should get a lawyer to represent her and her mother uh, with respect to this maltreatment by the nursing home but she was having no luck because uh, a lawyer would be looking for the value, the monetary value in the case. And of course, a person in a nursing home doesn't have medical expenses. They're paid for by Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and, they, and they don't have lost wages, which are the two main components of value in a, a to an attorney in a, a position to sue a, a, a nursing home. And I told her, look, the real value is the pain and suffering that your mother's going through. And I mean, it's literally pain and suffering uh and that what that's doing to the family in terms of their pain and suffering having to watch a loved one go through that kind of in essence torture and i told her you're a filmmaker videotape what's happening to your mom uh put together something to show to a lawyer so that they can get a feel for what the 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 pain and suffering and the damages are so she did that uh, and then we started talking about why the system is dysfunctional, how do, how can we change it, what is what is it that's that's causing all of this, um, and the bottom line. And we'll probably have more of a discussion about this when we turn to uh, ripple of change. Um, the bottom line is that uh, there's a lot of money being made in keeping the system the same. There's a lot of money being spent in terms of there's tens of millions of dollars, if not more, being spent for lobbying and for campaign contributions by the industry to keep the system the same. And the only way you can combat that, if you don't have all that money, of course, is to get the the word out there, get information out to the public at large and get people uh, educated and activated and motivated to the change. And so that's what that conversation, then what the question is, well, how do you do that? Well, today, and, 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 and Todd, I know in, in one of our emails, you mentioned that you're not a, you, you're not a fan of, of pop culture. 
and I, and I and I was not a fan of pop culture. I've never never been. But how do you change? How do you educate people on a on a large scale basis? How do you motivate them to demand change? How do you change culture? Is really what we're talking about here, and what you're talking about in your book. And my view, I've, I've kind of come full circle, especially after seeing what you know Dopesick did is that you've got to go where the people are getting their information. And the people are getting their information from streaming services, from movies, from shows, from looking at stuff on their phone. And so we came up with the idea of, let's do a documentary. Uh, let's get people educated. Let's show them how the system is failing. And let's use it as a tool to get people motivated to demand change from our legislators, regulators, um, everybody else that has control over how things are done. So that's that's where we're at. So, th so this film is is now, it's, it's an edit completely funded by contributions from the public at large. Uh, they're 100% tax deductible. Uh, the contributions are through the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, a 501c3, that's our fiscal sponsor. And the film is three-quarters of the way through editing. Uh, we're, we're still raising funds for the finishing costs. After it's edited, we're going to need uh, to to fund you know, the lawyer to, to vet uh, everything to make sure that we've got all the clearances, the music, all the little other little things they do on on films, like the making sure the color is right and all that, that that I'm learning about, um, and you know our intention is that, and it's now going to be a four part uh, docu series because we've gotten so much material. We've interviewed more than seventy uh, experts, and it's it's designed to educate the public about how this system is being run. How, how the putting profit over care and over people is having devastating results on our most vulnerable folks that are confined to nursing homes or living in nursing homes. And it's going to talk about why and what can be done to change that. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of retired, but I, I'm not, and I, I'm doing something completely different but it's still for the cause of justice. I love that. And frankly, I think you're spot on with the use of different media forums to create a social contagion, which ultimately leads to policy change, which is how we're gonna get the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak. <clears throat> I had this exact conversation. Uh, I flew out to New York to be interviewed for a podcast, and this was the exact discussion we had was around a documentary and the power behind it. And ironically enough, I had just uh, saw the, the documentary Medicine Man yesterday regarding Stan Brock and uh, Remote Area Medical. Fascinating film. I think it's going to be coming out digitally next year. But same concept. It just rips the Band-Aid off on the millions of people that don't have health insurance, can't afford to go get care, and these long lines to go see pop-up medical clinics that are free. I mean... Yeah. We're the richest country in the world, and, and we're having pop-up medical clinics to serve a good percentage of our our community. That's that, that's just insanity. Um, so, 
Yeah, right. and the ins insanity of it all, it's been going on for decades. I mean, that's, you know, I, w I lived and worked in rural Virginia for 27 years. Uh, and even back in the 90s, they would publicize these pop-up clinics for people to get dental care in Appalachia uh, mm -hmm. or medical care in Appalachia. So, so we, you know, we keep doing the same thing over and over again. The system doesn't change and that's frustrating to me. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we're way past, let's just take it a little bit of a time. Let's have discussions. Let's have committees form and meet. We're way past that. Okay. This stuff's been go all of this stuff's been going on for decades and now it's time for action. All the talking is is done. Let's get let's get to it. Time to blow some shit up. Yeah, basically, yes. Let's let's disrupt this quo. People are making money off of it. That's why it stays the same. I just wanted to say congrats, Rick, on your continued efforts post retirement and uh, applying your you know your passion in a different way. That's that's uh, just fantastic. So. You know, speaking to your current project, uh, you know, we're big fans of transparency, uh, as you can tell, and aligned incentives, right? So giving that voice to the, the most disadvantaged um, is what our quadruple aims built on. So in the context of healthcare, right, that's patient experience, quality care for everyone, lower cost, it's got to be affordable, right, and then provider wellness. Um, how would you say all these elements are lacking in nursing? Uh, nursing care today, they are lacking in the mo most grotesque way possible imaginable. Okay, yeah, and you know, you sent me the book, and I did read it, and I did take my, you know, got the takeaways from it. And in terms of your the quadruple aim, of course, let's you know, two of those go together in the nursing home industry: patient experience and quality of care. Those are. Are based and it's and I, my guess is that to some extent it's probably the same in many of the the, the medical in, in the medical field. If you have bad quality of care, care you're going to have bad patient experience, and if you have good quality of care, your patient experience is going to be good. Um, with few exceptions, the vast majority of patients will have this experience when they go into a nursing home, and you know our our. Um, our country is aging. Uh, there's going to be more and more demand for that kind of long-term care. And this is the, what people need to know. And what I hope our film does is educate them about what your experience is going to be like uh, when you or your loved one have to go into long-term care in one of these facilities. So first you're stripped. The first thing that happens is you're stripped of every shred of dignity that you might have thought you had, okay, before you went in there. You, you no longer have privacy because you share a room. You no longer have choices about, you know, eating the stuff you like because all the food comes on the tray and it's all the same. Else is deciding what you eat. You're going to have a maximum of, if you're lucky, three showers or baths per week. Okay. I mean, or just that thought is already kind of like, why do I want to do that? Why do I want to go there for me? Uh, if you need any kind of assistance in walking or getting around, you may or may not get to the bathroom in time to avoid soiling yourself. So you're gonna have that indignity. Um, you may or not may not have to wait hours upon hours to get yourself cleaned, have someone come and help you get cleaned and changed and, and change your, your bed sheets and all that. You may or may not get a, a drink of water when you're thirsty. 
Uh, your room may or may not get cleaned on a regular basis. So that's the experience that most nursing home residents have today. And what I, I got to tell you that what is sad, and I had this experience when I was working at the attorney general's office in Virginia and talking to family members of residents of nursing homes who were relating to me how they would come in and find, oh, my my loved one, my mother or, or grandmother was, I came in and they'd been, you know, they'd soiled themselves and they'd been sitting there for hours. And that happened, you know, once or twice a week. And I got to, the, I had to tell them, hey, that's awful, but it's the standard of care. When your, your health care system, when your nursing home system gets to the point where the standard of care is for somebody to go to the, you know, soil themselves and have to wait for hours to sit in their own waste for hours before somebody comes and cleans them up. And that's the standard. Uh, and once or twice a week is okay with the nursing home operators, the regulators, uh, the enforcement folks. We've got a broken system, okay? Second, if your health, health deteriorates, which it will under those kinds of conditions, which breed infections and uh, malnutrition, uh, dehydration, all the things that are bad and that, that you probably know better than I that results from those in an elderly person with comorbidities, um, the, the treatment decisions will be made more often than not based on financial considerations for that nursing home. So if you get a bed sore, you might, it might get treated. You're likely to have urinary tract or other infections. You're likely to experience a fall uh, and all of this due to insufficient staffing. And you may rarely, you, you might see a physician once a month uh, and you're likely to be medicated if you complain too much, okay? So basically to me, that's torture. Okay, so so here's so that's the second step of the process of going to nursing home. You get you get stripped of your dignity. You get to be tortured, and then as a result of all of that, you end up having premature death. Um, the issue of lower costs. Well, on average, Medicaid pays two hundred fifty dollars per day per patient. That's so seventy five hundred dollars per month. That's ninety thousand dollars per year. I, I, I'm pausing to let that sink in because, you know, I'm I'm thinking of, gee, if I paid ninety thousand dollars per year for me, what kind of a place could I live in? Pretty nice, you would think. Um, Medicare pays significantly more. Uh, Medicare, which covers rehabilitation up to a hundred days, pays well over five hundred dollars per day per patient, and yet the nursing home industry complains is part of their marketing right now that in order to provide minimum staffing that CMS is considering mandating to CMS being the government entity that regulates nursing homes, they're complaining that they're not getting enough money from Medicaid uh, to cover minimum staffing, uh, which is ridiculous. So the other part of that then, the last, uh, 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 leg of the quadruple aim is provider wellness. Well, you have an industry that for the last 40 years, its business model has been based on understaffing. That's its, that's its regular routine business model. So imagine uh, nursing staff 
a certified nursing assistant and or licensed practical nurse who's responsible for taking care of, you know, 15 to 30 patients in an eight hour shift. Uh, how, and they're paid the lowest pay in the in the entire industry for nursing assistants and nurses. In fact, the uh, head of the American Healthcare Association, which is the nursing home lobby, recently said that they, since the pandemic, they made some improvements to the pay of nursing assistants. They're almost now getting almost getting a livable wage now. Um, what kind of provider wellness do you think you would have if you're overworked, uh, you're understaffed to the point where you can't take, can't possibly do what needs to be done for your your patients, and you're paid underpaid, you're paid less than um, a sandwich maker at Subway. I would, I, you know, we know what that that does to provider wellness, and so they have a shortage that they've created with this business model that they're now using as an excuse for fighting uh, any kind of federal uh, minimum staffing standards. So to me, the industry is completely, is totally abysmably abysmal in terms of its transparency, its compliance with the principles that you've set out in our quadruple aim. And the question is, how do we change that? Because they're making a ton of money. Yeah, it's having watched the the preview video earlier today, and, and I knew this from being in practice for a little over 20 years that many of these things were going on. It's heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to watch. And it's the complete antithesis of, of our quadruple aim. Enough said on that, I suppose. We need along with many areas in healthcare, we need dramatic change. And I applaud you for, for tackling this topic for sure. Yeah, it's shocking and it should scare everybody to, to pause and, and want to take action, right? Because beyond the indignity that you have, and I've had this conversation with family and friends, you know, when we all get to that age where we're going to need care, um, you, you go into this and you, you know, you lose, um, <clears throat> control and then everything that you've worked for your whole life is also given away right with yeah. with unaffordable care that's there right ten ten thousand dollars plus a month i mean it's it's going to be a burden on anyone so glad you highlight all of that yeah if you have any kind of savings or any kind of money saved away but you need to have that long-term care and that kind of a facility, they'll end up taking that. And if you live long enough, you'll be on Medicaid. You'll be a Medicaid patient uh, fairly, fairly quickly. Uh, but even if you have that kind of money, if you're in one of those facilities, they don't treat you any differently than anybody else. You're still subject to the same indignities and the same lack of care and the same care decision based on profit over what you need. So even that money is, you know, other than avoiding going into one of those facilities, if you have to go into one of those facilities with that amount of money, it's not going to spare you these indignities. Understood. Yeah. 
So we've we've talked a lot of serious, uh, important items here, Rick. Maybe we could take a a little uh, swing here and and lighten the mood. We have something called the Ripple Challenge question. That's good, Josh. You read my mind. I was like, I can't make any jokes with these these serious topics. I I would feel horrible joking about it. I know, right? It, 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 absolutely, but I'd uh, I'd love to just throw this out to you because it gives us a chance to um, you know laugh a little bit. So the first Ripple Challenge uh, question here is, uh, how would you say that you do your best work in the evening or in the morning? Oh, definitely in the morning. Um, I've always been better in the morning. I used to get up really early and go work out and then go to be at work by 730 in the morning and get, you know, a lot of stuff done in the morning. And then the afternoon is like a slow decline. Um, In (laughs) fact, doing this podcast at 5 30 especially this time of year it was like am i gonna do this podcast i feel like getting ready for bed and getting in bed under the covers <laughs> because it's dark and colder out that's the other part of the challenge <laughs> right we really wanted to test you i guess right but yeah todd's a morning person i'm an evening person so i guess it, it worked out so thanks thanks for that yeah for sure in, in the writing of the book we would be routinely on like a opposite cycle of, of pinging each other 12 hours apart and it, it actually worked out quite well that way um, right yeah but uh yeah that's I'm, I'm a morning person as well for sure so uh we, we got a couple other probably more quick hitters in terms of questions here I, I think we we wanted to spend most of the time talking about the recent project but we did want to rewind the clock uh, a little bit and, and talk about some of the other things you've done in the past because obviously a lot of notoriety around the the series, particularly with Dopesick. Um, and Josh, you know, me not being the pop culture guy, he he probably semi-begged me to watch it for the better part of six months. And 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 that's nothing against Joshua or, or the show. That's just kind of me. Um, and so I did. Uh, and, you know, as a family physician who took care of uh, many patients with chronic pain that I inherited from my previous partner, it resonated with me very quickly. I think it was in the first episode almost that I was moved to tears. And, and I would say that there was at least one or two or three or four, or maybe six other times that I was either crying as a result of it or near tears. And, and I'd like to know, how, how did you, two parts to this question, how did you feel about the series and how did that event and slash work inspire the current endeavor so um i'm going to answer that first question maybe in a roundabout way i guess i tend to do that because i'm a lawyer and like to hear myself talk um <laughs> so i was not a much of a pop culture guy either in fact i ha- had an arm's length i made sure i kept the media at arm's length throughout my career as a prosecutor I retired in December of 2018 from the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, from the feds. And in the spring of 2019, I got this con- call from this guy named Danny Strong, who I, I hadn't heard of, but he's apparently, uh, people that know pop culture know him. He's done a lot of work in Hollywood. Uh, he's been an actor. He's been produced some uh, shows on HBO that are popular, and he was producing uh uh, a show called Empire on FX about the, the music business. Uh, and he called and wanted to come and meet me in Roanoke because he wanted to do a show that uh, 
some sort of a show that included uh, a description of our uh, case uh, against Purdue Pharma. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you and sit down and chat about it. And I told him up front, I said, the reason I'm meeting with you is that to the extent you, that you depict our investigation, I want to make sure it's depicted accurately. To me, the factual accuracy was very important. So Danny, true to his word, I think, uh, the uh, depicted our investigation in as accurate a way as he could for a show that's based on fact but is actually fiction so in other words uh, how we conducted the investigation what we found the outcome were all accurately rendered uh in the in the series but of course the dialogue specific details are fictionalized right so i i didn't have a bit for example i didn't have a basement in my house and he showed me in the basement working working at home i did work at home on the case quite a bit uh and did uh especially the reviewing that uh, film that was that they used that advertising film called I Got My Life Back that they used. Um, that part was accurate, but the details like, you know, where it was and, and in fact, my wife said it was it was not accurate because she would never have called me to dinner. She would have just gone gone ahead because <laughs> she got because I never came up home on time. So she she said, I so, you know, you never you never showed up on time. You tell me it'd be an hour and you'd be in three hours later. So I just got into the habit of making dinner and putting it away and letting you fend for yourself. So she's I would never have called you for dinner. I said, I know uh, it's, it's fiction based on fact. Um, so I thought that that was it was very accurate uh, in in terms of our uh, investigative part of the, the the series. And I think I actually really liked it as a whole. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's a, it's a work of art, quite frankly. Um, and my, the biggest takeaway from it should be that um, how it depicted what people with substance abuse disorder, what we used to call addicts, it, how, how that drug, how opioids affect them and affect their brain, and how it's imp it's virtually impossible for them to go cold turkey and get treated that way and that medication assisted treatment is really important so i think those two takeaways were very important um and the main takeaways of that series um, i talked to a number of people who had relatives brothers i think uh, one guy that i went to church with had a brother who, or sister, I think, had become addicted to opioids through OxyContin and basically became incapable of taking care of her two kids so that the grandparents ended up having to take care of the kids. And he, as the brother, seeing this from the outside, had a lot of resentment, couldn't understand how she could basically abandon the kids. But after watching the series, about how that drug changes your brain to the point where you can think of nothing but avoiding withdrawal, mm -hmm. everything else becomes secondary. Mm -hmm. That that went a long way to change attitudes and to to I think break down sort of the resentment, um, the dislike, the sort of um, uh, 
inability to understand why a person was acting the way they did. So I think that that was a very important series from that aspect. There was there was so much to learn from watching that. Um, you know, even as a physician who had dealt with chronic pain patients, there were things that I took away from it. Um, I enjoyed every every moment of it. To be honest with you, the highs and the lows, the emotions were a bit of a roller coaster for me. It brought back a lot, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so, Rick, I understand the Supreme Court is hearing a case regarding the the Sackler family. Can you fill us in about that a little bit? Yes, uh, I can. The uh, so that case arises from a bankruptcy. So the the Sackler family uh, ran Purdue Pharma from for for decades, um, and they're the ones that were running it when we did our case, the first OxyContin case, resulting in the 2007 conviction of the company, as well as the three top executives. Um, and they were running it even after that when it resulted in a second conviction in 2020. So they've been the, the people that have been running this criminal enterprise for the last 20 years. Um, and when they were caught the second time in 2020, they, they filed for bankruptcy because there were a, uh, I would say thousands of lawsuits that were filed against the company and against them individually, both by state um, governments and, and local governments, uh, the feds, as well as individuals. And so they, they put the company into bankruptcy. Part of the bankruptcy plan, and they, and they formed shop, they went and found a favorable jo uh, judge in New York uh, who uh, had a history of approving these agreements that I'm gonna talk about, they're called third party releases as part of the bankruptcy plan of the bank, the, fi the final bankruptcy uh, outcome. So they picked this judge, filed the company filed bankruptcy, but part of the, re the result or the re resolution of that bankruptcy was that the Sacklers individually, uh, including like three or four generations of them, uh, as well as uh, hundreds of their, you know, supporters and friends and whatnot, were going to, uh, were approved to get released from all civil liability arising from any of Purdue Pharma's conduct or misconduct, even though none of those individuals filed for bankruptcy. Okay, and that's a that's a huge injustice. Okay, now the problem is that there's nothing in the statute, the uh, bankruptcy code or bankruptcy law, that allows for that. It's sort of a judge-made thing. And but their incentive for getting people to agree to that was this. And this is another part of the injustice. In 2008, after we convicted the company from 2008 to 2016, they continued to make money, uh, obviously, from criminal conduct of the company because resulting in the company being convicted again in 2020. The Sacklers took that money out of the company and put it in overseas offshore bank accounts, accounts and trusts. So the company was stripped. So when it went to bankruptcy, it had very few assets. So in exchange for repatriating, dribbling back some of that $11 billion that they laundered out of the company's accounts that are the product of the company's criminal conduct, 
they're going to dribble back uh, money over the course of 18 years, totaling $6 billion to put back into the, the bankruptcy estate in exchange for these releases. Okay. And so the Supreme Court is hearing argument on December 4th uh, to determine, to decide whether those kinds of third party releases, releases to people who have not even filed bankruptcy are authorized by the bankruptcy code. If the Supreme Court says that they are not authorized by the bankruptcy code, then the, you know, I guess the question is whether the Department of Justice is going to then move forward with prosecuting individuals because they've not prosecuted any individuals for the company's criminal conduct that the company pled guilty to in 2020. So that that's what at stake. It's 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 uh, something I've been watching very closely because that's to me that's unfinished business. We 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 were uh, almost we were prevented from prosecuting the three um, corporate executives to the full extent by the political appointees at the Department of Justice. Uh, had we been able to do that, you know, what our thinking was is that one or more of them would have rolled basically cooperated against the Sacklers that were controlling the company. The Department of Justice intervened um, and, and basically made a political decision to prevent us from doing that. And so that's sort of a unfinished business from my perspective that I'm, I'm looking at, uh, have been advocating for the prosecution of individuals responsible for company conduct. The company is not a driverless car. There are people that are using it to commit crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Here's the ripple challenge. Question number two, soup or salad and why? Uh, salad. My, my first answer is salad. Um, not that, not that I love salad, but it's, it's something you can eat all year round and soup is like in the summertime doesn't cut it. What about gazpacho? No, no, <laughs> no, no, <gazpacho>. <laughs> no, no cold soup. No cold <laughs> soup for me. <laughs> How about you, Joshua? Super salad, buddy. Oh, soup all the way. And I, I'm one of those uh, sick puppies that can do soup in the summer. So my uh, my wife uh, picks on me all the time about it. But that that's my quirk. <laughs> so. And I'm I'm probably 50 50. It probably depends on what the soup and or salad is and how my mood fancies me. I suppose. Um, all right, Josh, I think you got the, the last question here. Fire away, sir. All right. So I understand that, uh, you know, you had mentioned this earlier that you had read through the in, entire Ripple Change book. So other than it's it's super long and we know that, um, you know, it was a thank you for your service to others. And just wonder if you had any final thoughts to impart. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I, thank you for sending me the book and thank you for connecting. Um, you know, I think we were both, we're all aligned in terms of how things need to change. And I guess in reading the book, um, number one, what was very compelling, I think, is looking at the issue from the two viewpoints of the physician and the patient. I thought that was very compelling and very interesting to see the counterpoint of what, you know, you, Todd, were thinking as the physician versus what Joshua was thinking and, and the, you know, maybe the, the need for that communication there uh, to be improved. 
So that I thought was compelling. That might make a good story, actually. Uh, but the question I had as I was going through the last few chapters was, yeah, man, this this is this is all righteous stuff, right? This is stuff that needs to be done. This it's it's, it's the old uh, how do we convince the powers that be that their their bottom line and their stock share prices for next week maybe are not as important as maybe the long term you know what's your bottom and how do we get the industry or the people that control the industry to look long term versus looking basically just past their nose at what today's stock market did or what the share price is going to be at the end of the month and so my my the thing that was running through my mind is you have some very powerful forces that like the system the way it is because they're making a ton of money uh you know they're they're walking over all of the providers that are burned out they're, they're, that's okay with them because as long as they make a profit they're walking over all the patients who have a horrible experience and who are not getting the care they provided Be, that's okay with them because they're making uh lots of money over and their share prices are um meeting expectations how do you mobilize how do you go against that how do you mobilize people to fight against that because i think that's your only currency right you don't have the big bucks that those forces have to lobby and to make con campaign contributions so your only currency is is expanding your community expanding the people that uh become a, that you can educate and activate and motivate to demand change so i guess the next challenge for you is how do you do that and that was the question that kept running through my mind as i was reading the last you know 50 pages or so i i think and i'll i'll jump in here joshua if that's okay because i i'm the one that's been doing a lot of the networking and having conversations with other physicians around the country and around the world. And one of the things that we're building towards is trying to develop a network of networks for all these individual groups that are doing wonderful things and combining those voices to get really loud. I think if we can have millions of people screaming the same thing, it's going to start to create some change, particularly at the highest levels of the legislature with policy, et cetera. That's what I would like to build towards. Obviously, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take many conversations, many, uh, you know, I was going to grab a rock, but uh, pebbles in the pond, so to speak. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of good people out there, Rick. And, and, and I think the more we start to connect those dots, I think we'll start to see some change occur. Good example is some of the pri uh, prior authorization reform that's going around. Um, I don't live in the state of New Jersey, but there's an initiative that's coming up for, I believe, a vote maybe on the 20th or, or something along those lines. And they needed a certain number of letters um, sent to the senators to move forward. And a handful of vocal physicians around the country got wind of this and started doing things on social media. And it went from like 200 letters being received on a Saturday to like 5,000 by the next Tuesday. That's pretty cool to see our voices mm -hmm. start to matter and, and make a difference. And there are there are, there are thousands of us out there as as physicians or providers. Think about how many tens of thousands or millions of patients are out there. If we can get them activated and pointing their voice in the right direction, I think it's going to make a difference. Yeah, no, that's 
that sounds like uh, the plan you've got to get, you know, I think especially your patients, because I, you know, I think your physician's group is a very limited number, but your patients, somehow you've got to get, get them activated and motivated. And uh, yeah, you know, that that's, that's the, uh, the, the challenge, I think, for you guys and you know, whatever I can do to help, uh, you know, let me know. Thank you, Rick, for that. Yeah, 100% agree. And that emotional connection too, and through the power of uh, media, social media, you know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta meet people where they're at, and you and you gotta speak to them in an emotional way, right? Because that's that's what moves people these days. They gotta feel it, and if they right. don't feel, it, they don't move. So, uh, thanks so much, Rick. It's been a wonderful conversation, enlightening, and uh, uh, a real pleasure to uh, to have you on. Thanks for everything you're doing. Hey, my pleasure, uh, Joshua and Todd, and. Likewise, thank you for what you're doing and, and trying to move the needle. So we'll, we'll hopefully we'll you know, link arms and, and charge ahead. Ebook formats. More information at www.ourquadrupleaim.com. Thanks for listening, and let's turn ripples into waves of lasting change. Stay tuned to this podcast as we search for examples of Our Quadruple Aim.